You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. So this is the part of sh- the show that if I was Richard, I would be starting the cold open. That's true. Yeah, where we like talk for a while and it doesn't really have anything to do with what the show is about. But then again, sometimes it does. Yeah, sometimes we have a theme. Yeah. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes it's just about how, oh, you Americans. Yeah, well, I just like to let him talk. He He's got that accent. It's so alluring. <laughs> I just let him speak. This is why English things are always going to be better. That's right. <laughs> and he will remind you of that fact. But yes, it's uh, my first time doing this without Richard. It's a little different. Yeah, it's uh, like I'm the stranger who offered you candy. Yeah. Come on in. Take a ride. It seems legit. I did come prepared, though. I have this sort of reddish sort of beard. Would you put this on? That kind of helps get me in the mood. Oh, sure. Hold on. Just sort of look like Richard. Yeah, hold on. Oh, that's that's much better. There you go. Ah. That looks very convincing on you. Okay. Do do you mind if I call you Richard throughout? It, It helps me. Um, okay. Would that be too weird? No, no, I guess you could do that. Well, tell you what, I have to get, I have to get used to the post-Richard reality, so I will just try to refer to you as Chris, but I may occasionally say something like, oh, hey, Richard, or hey, Ginger, and, and please don't take offense. <laughs> is there anything it, hard else, for me. Is there anything else we need to make this feel like it does with Richard? You know, the thing that Richard always has that always helps us get in the mood is, oh, I know... Beer. Wait, really? He stole that from me. I'm Chris. I'm here with Marco, who's usually here with Richard. Usually, yes. But Richard is busy uh, flipping his house, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, physically, it's it, he's just got you know some levers and some crowbars. I don't know how he intends to do it, but I they, that guy and his wife, who are both the loveliest people in the world, they're also the most like gung ho people I've ever met. They're like, and now we're going to build an entire other house next door. It, it's so, an ambitious undertaking. Yeah, I'm not even sure what they're doing, to be honest. But I know it's a lot of work. I sweated just think hearing him start to talk about it, and went, okay, have fun. Let me know when you're done. Let's and you start in back. August. That's the best time of year in <laughs> Texas to work out. I, I know. I'm like, <laughs> what are you doing? You're gonna give yourself a heart attack. You're old now. He's gonna need that beer and a lot of other fluids to stay hydrated. He's gonna wish he didn't have that beard. Is what he's oh, yeah. gonna wish. Anyway, we've got a lot of titles to talk about this week. Oh, boy. Yeah. First off, let me just say thank you to your subscribers uh, who are out there. Can't tell you how much we appreciate it, how much we need you. We really do. This show, all the other shows, including the ones that uh, that are, are already there for subscribers and the ones that aren't, wouldn't be there at all if it wasn't for the subscribers. You are the essential key to unlocking our magic door. That sounds sexual, doesn't it? I'm a sorry. Bit, I didn't but mean it's okay. to go that way. I knew what you were going for. Uh, um, join up at multiple different levels. Everything helps. Please, please sign up for a subscription. Thank you so much. Yeah. We've got uh, lots of good shows on there, including The Original Gentleman and The Breakfast Pub. And uh, shit, what is that other show we do on there? We do a couple different shows. quite a few. We do commentaries for movies. We do all sorts of stuff. So by all means, tune into that as well 
if you're thinking about buying anything on Amazon, including any of these titles that we are talking about today, you'll see on the page itself, I don't know if you downloaded this from iTunes maybe, but if you go to the actual site, oneofus.net, to the page of this, you'll see all the images of the movies that we're talking about. They're clickable. If you click on one of them, we'll take you to Amazon where you can buy that thing. If you do buy that thing through that link that was on our page we get a healthy little kickback from that. Absolutely. And you can buy anything. You can go on there. You could go k- click on uh, the lobster. You're like, maybe I'll buy the lobster. And you go on. It's like, oh, that's still a little too expensive yeah. for me right now. Maybe I'll, I'll look later. But you know what I do need? A new washing machine. That's and, right. And from that link that you opened, from looking at our link to the lobster, you open and buy a washing machine, we get the kickback from the washing machine. You know, and I'll bet Amazon puts under their other little recommendations, like you look for the lobster. You might actually like live Maine lobster by yeah. the pound. You don't know. True. You could yeah. probably, that imitation crab meat, whatever you need. Buy the live Maine lobster by the pound. We will get a nice kickback Absolutely. from that. <laughs> but you can't sue us if they bite you, because, you know... That's entirely up to you. That was your decision. Yeah. Yeah. We take no responsibility for live animals you choose to purchase through Amazon. (laughs) No, not at all. But uh, yes, please do that. It helps immensely. Anyway, without further ado, let's move to the reviews. Yes. And we're going to start off with uh, some local boys here that we've been covering a lot of their stuff recently because they've been aggressively moving into narrative entertainment. That's Rooster Teeth's film... Laser Team, spelled with a Z, not an S. Important. Uh, Yes, Laser Team. This was a fun little film. You know, it was. It was fun. I mean, it's not good. They set out for you to have fun, and they accomplished that mission. I guess more than anything, this reminds me of, like, um, uh... Broken Lizard type stuff. Yeah. You, you know, know what I mean? It, it's sketch comedy that's been stretched out to feature length. That sometimes works for against it. You know, I think these guys tend to work really good in a short form. But for a first feature effort uh, made locally and done with, you know, some obviously on a budget, but yeah. some decent effects and a pretty fun high concept premise. Uh, you have these four morons who live in a small Texas town who find a suit of power armor sent to us by aliens. Unbeknownst to them, you know, the U.S. government has been waiting for this package and have spent decades training the perfect human specimen to wear this battle armor uh, against an imminent alien threat. Uh, unfortunately, the, the four yokels end up putting a piece of armor on each, which then locks to their bodies, and they have to and insert some metaphor about teamwork here. <laughs> but regardless, it is silly, it's dopey, it's fun, and uh, yeah, uh, it's worth checking uh, out. And just interesting note, the guy who plays, the guy who's supposed to be wearing the armor, who continues to appear through the rest of the movie, is played by Alan Michael Richson, who played Aquaman on Smallville. Oh, is that yeah, right? Yeah, interesting. You, you look at him, you're like, dude, there's no way you haven't played a superhero on the CW yet. <laughs> it's just no He does way. have that look. And I'm sure he'll be on Arrow next season There's a CW something. look. Uh, and it is also for people who are uh, in Austin, you know, it's kind of fun to see actors and local personalities that you might recognize sure. from around town or local media, from local theater or local film. So I, I kind of got distracted at times because I was going, hey, it's that guy. Or, oh, yeah. oh, I had a beer with that dude. Including uh, Corey Coleman. Indeed. Who's in here briefly as a news podcaster, somewhat awkwardly. Uh, a bit typecast, to be sure. But, you know. <laughs> uh, and this is, of course, like I said, made all by local people as mm-hmm. well. I mean, it's directed by the CEO of Rooster Teeth, Matt Hullum, and the main star is Bernie Burns, the former CEO. And, uh, and I believe it was completely crowdfunded. This is like a yeah. fan-funded film. I guess, so, like, know. I mean, 
there's a lot of this that doesn't work. Sure. But there's a certain amount of, like, you're rooting for him, you know? And, like, it's not terrible. It's just not all the jokes work. There's some funny moments. There's some clever bits. But there's just as much... Boy, that's a cliched old bit. I, yeah. I think my favorite bit is where the one character's uh, uh, the girl that he really likes, who's the daughter of another one of the characters, shows up and she's been possessed by the evil aliens and she beats the shit out of everybody. And you're like, that was kind of cool. That was cool. I, I, I did enjoy the the idea of the the local village idiot getting slapped with a helmet that made him a super genius. Yeah, Gavin Free, yeah. who actually appears on quite a few of uh, Rooster Teeth's shows, and was also one of the two guys, him, him and Bernie Burns, who's also in this, did that were in that documentary, two-part documentary that they released, uh, The World's Best Head Massage. Oh, yeah. okay. But yeah, no, this is reasonably it's a good first solid. Effort. It's a good first effort. It's a good first like, effort, and, with and one promise. If you're expecting something... A lot more professional, you're going to be disappointed. But if, it's, you, if it's you check on the out way. a movie called Laser Team, spelled with a Z, yeah. you already established your expectations. This film will meet those expectations. I actually thought it was it was uh, had reasonably good effects. Yeah, surprisingly, I mean, they they Mostly. obviously for the the budget they had, you know, they really squeezed their dollar. I mean, considering that it was all crowdfunded. They did a good job with it. I, like, I think the main thing is that this shouldn't be as good as it actually is. It should be just unwatchable, and it's not at all. It's like, oh, that was cute. I, I think it would have been better as a web series or, or yeah. just that extended sketch, but as a feature, it, it manages to work, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I'd rather watch it than Pixels. That's for goddamn sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, next up is, uh, going in a very different direction, is The Lobster. Oh, indeed. Talk um, about different. Yeah, yeah, super different. Uh, uh, directed, co-written, and co-produced by Yorgos Lanthinios, who yeah. is a weirdo of a Greek film uh, video the- theater director uh, who has best known for Dogtooth. Broke into the scene with Dogtooth, which is fucking weird. Oh no, I, that was one of my favorite films at South by the year. It I was saw. great. It, it's a great uneasy mix, and I know that I had been talking to Richard. Oh, Richard. I'm sorry, I got lost. Uh, I had been talking to Richard uh, completely uh, out of context. We were just talking a few months back, and he mentioned this director. And this, I should point out, uh, as Chris has mentioned, it is a Greek director, but this is his English-language debut. Mm -hmm. And according to uh, Richard, with his interview with uh, Janos, that, you know, it was just kind of getting hard to make films in Greece and raise financing, so... He went ahead and broke into the English market with some good big size stars like Colin Farrell and Rachel Vise and yeah. uh, John C. Riley and Olivia uh, Coleman, who's in anything that requires a British accent. Yeah. Ac- accent right now. It's so. a great cast, but you know what? They do. He's. We've already set up that this is a bit of an eccentric, interesting director. A bit. <laughs> uh, but we should talk a little bit about the movie, which is one of the most bonkers plots to come out this year. Oh, yeah, with Colin Farrell. And, okay, first off, keep in mind, this is one of those things, this is not our world or no. reality. This is like a parallel dimension or something. It's like a dystopian future. It's very abstract. But not even a future. Well, it's, it's not even a dystopian future. It's a dystopian parallel universe. Yeah. Because stuff in here is just not... The way our physics. I works. also noticed nobody has cell phones yeah. in this movie, you know, which I think is really to the the film's strength in that it sets up this kind of timeless scenario. Mm-hmm. It imagines a world in which everyone is required to be in a relationship, loving or not. They are required to be in some kind of form of marriage 
And should, for whatever reason, they fall out of love, they get divorced, a spouse dies, single people are required to go to this hotel for 45 days, during which time they are to find a mate. If not, they are transformed through a process that is never really explained. I'm not sure how they could. <laughs> the monster, the animal of their choice. Yeah. Uh, Colin Farrell is the single sad sack who has chosen a lobster for himself, should he not find his one true love. Yeah, which everyone is a little taken aback by. It's like, that's an odd choice. Yeah. Uh, he's there with a dog, which is actually his brother, right. who had gone through this process. Not metaphorically failed. his brother. It is his brother. Literally his brother. Um, yeah. yeah, and like the way... The first half of this movie is basically the hotel. Right. And his experience is there. And trying to decide, is this even what I want? I mean, it is like the most awkward singles dance you've oh, ever seen yeah. in your entire life this whole movie where no everyone there is just terrible at meeting other people it, it's great absurdity and one of the things that <coughs> uh, like i said there's a time limit you've got a ticking clock you've got 40 days to find a mate or else you're released into the wild and you're just taking your chances however you can extend your stay <laughs> and the way you do that is by going on daily hunts and the sink, there is a band of wild, sort of feral single people who have chosen <laughs> to remain single and unattached. And if you hunt them down and shoot them with a tranquilizer dart, each person you bring back adds an extra day. So, I, you know, to kind of talk about the metaphor of this film is in a way to kind of give away too much. But I do think it's a very abstract world that speaks to how. You know, we are we all feel pressure to be in relationships and how sometimes people will even go into a relationship based on on the slenderest of things in common. Yeah. You know, where there's really no love, but because the societal pressure to be uh, engaged in, in a kind of mutual partnership is so strong that people just kind of will go with anybody. Oh, you know, you like this movie. I like that movie. You have nosebleeds. I have True. nosebleeds. And suddenly it's like imagine a world where everybody you know, like Breakfast and Tiffany's and they all got married just based on that single fact, like that horrible <laughs> 90s song. Yeah. You know, that's what, that's the sad reality. I love world. old white actors making really racist, racist Chinese yeah, uh, you know, impressions. <laughs> it's, it's, that's, hey, you know, that might be the woman of your dreams for all I know. I'm not going to judge. I will say as much as there clearly is some metaphor here. I think in one way that this doesn't work for me totally is that the extended metaphor doesn't work. It's like, okay, there's a point where you're just weird for weird sake here. You're doing stuff just to do it and be like, okay, that's weird. I like it. Yeah. And that's fine. But I always kind of get, I guess, mildly annoyed when it's like, you want to say something, but you, the, as part of that same allegory, you're also doing stuff that has nothing to do with it, really. It's just goofy weirdness. Yeah. Like, uh, okay, am I supposed to think or not here? And, yeah. and the lobster ultimately by the end is a very depressing experience. It is. For a film that's so absurd, you'd think it would be funnier than it is. Well, yeah, and once you th see John C. Riley, you figure, oh, this will be some hilarious bits, and it's not really. No. It's not without humor. It is funny, but this is, and there's some moments that I think are almost laugh-out-loud funny, but you have to be aware that going into this, this is a piece of absurdist humor. Uh, it's more closer to, like, 
you know, if you like the Buñuel, like the works of Luis Buñuel or or Fellini, you might dig this. If you think humor is Adam Sandler flicks, you are going to hate this. This movie. is definitely not. You, for you should you. not. In fact, you shouldn't even be in that theater. You, you should. You're probably going to bring the collective IQ of the audience. Don't down. glance at the poster. Yeah, uh, you could you could do damage to yourself. Yeah, I mean the poster <laughs> alone, just just the cover looks like it's a Bergman film. You know, it doesn't <laughs> look like it's going to be fun. Uh, but basically, the director has said that he wanted to. His previous films had dealt with various issues through the form of allegory and an absurdist worldview, uh, and he's applying those same techniques uh, and that same methodology uh, to the subject of love and. What you take from this is going to probably be very dependent on how you feel about the subject. But I actually, this is rare. Uh, it's rare that it happens, but this is actually my pick of the week. And wow. it barely became my pick of the week. Normally, I, I kind of save that towards the end. Uh, but it just happened to show up early in the slot. And it came down between this and another film we'll talk about later. Uh, and the only reason I chose this one over the other is that this is a newer film. It still has to find an audience, and I predict in, you know, good 10, 20 years when we're looking at films from this era and we're looking at sort of art films, Look back at this. I, I think it's ones. going to hold up very well because it's not rooted in a specific time or not place. Not at all. I think it'll be like somebody going to see, you know, like Avenging Angel or Last Day at Marion <laughs> Bot or just some kind of weird absurdist thing that, you know, every cinephile at some point feels they need to expose themselves to. Yeah, fair enough. So it could be something of a small, modest classic down the road, and, and only time will tell. Uh, it does come with one extra feature, 22 minutes, which is basically a making of EPK. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I mean, if after you watch this, it's quite possible you're going to have a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah. You might watch it and still not really get a lot of answers, but it might help clear a few things up. But you have something to think about. Yeah. Uh, next up is Summer Camp. Oh, talk about nothing to think about. I I actually, we come down on different sides on this because I really enjoyed Summer Camp. I, I did enjoy it with some reservations. When I say not much to think about, that doesn't mean it's bad. Mm. I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with the occasional dumb sort of movie that, okay, I know what this is. I've seen enough horror or zombie infection rage films that I see where this is going. Uh, this is basically summer camp. Can you pick a more generic title? Well, that's this? that's part of what I actually like about what works about this, because this whole thing movie is almost a trick on the viewer mm -hmm. in some ways for setting up what your expectations are for cheap, for a cheap horror film with rage virus zombies and then turning it into something that's actually pretty different than that in the it end. It's yeah. from write, producer and screenwriter Alberto Menini, who, uh, producer and screenwriter of the Wreck franchise, who right. released the first two films are phenomenal blasts of horror. Oh, yeah. It's so good. Uh, so I'm Rex like, when up. I saw that, which is why I asked for this, it was like, okay, I guess we'll give it a shot. And the first 30 minutes of this film, you're not going to see anything special as this group of, like, American teens uh, are staying in this uh, European camp, summer camp. They're, it's an English immersion camp yeah. in the rural Spain. Yeah, and they're, like, uh, like three of them have done it before. One of them is the brand new sort of prissy girl mm -hmm. who's there. And... It's not long before suddenly there one of them is infected with this rage virus thing for reasons that we don't know and starts coming at the other people violently. So this continues. It starts happening to other characters. And here's the thing. And I'm going to I'm not going to be able to sell you on this unless I give you the first twist. I'm just not. And it's a shame because I really do think a lot of well, people out there who love horror movies are going to love it. And I feel like I have to say what it is. Before you give the twist, and, and I understand where you're coming from, uh -huh. but let me see if I can rephrase this without having to do that. 
as Chris suggested, this is, feels like a pretty by-the-numbers kind of setup. There's a little bit of misdirection in the beginning that there is one idea. The one idea that this film executes very well is the nature of the contagion, how it's spread, what its effects are, and once we find out what those effects are and to what extent they exist, uh, that creates a few interesting moral quandaries for our characters. Mm -hmm. So is that kind of what you were going to say? Because I'd hate to kind yeah, of just spell right. it out. No, you're right. Uh, and it uh, takes the film in a direction it wouldn't have gone yeah. if it was just another regular yeah. zombie thriller. It creates some, some interesting situations, some interesting dynamics between these characters. And by the end, I was like, God damn, I don't believe it. I wouldn't, I couldn't, I never would have thought I'd say this 30 minutes in, but I really had fun watching that. Yeah. And, and really, I had already decided... Let me tell you, every time we get a stack like this, where you have like 12, 13 <laughs> movies, and you're like, Christ, I have to watch all these. And I see something like Summer Camp with its generic name, its generic cover, four, you know, generically Attractive bland teens teams. in a summer camp slasher scenario. Can't even be bothered to take their tops off. I'm just like, oh, <laughs> I, I know I'm going to not enjoy that. But you know what? Halfway through... Uh, even less than halfway through, once I realized that where they were going with this, it held my interest. And okay. that's the most I can say for something that is, on the surface, very formulaic. But if you're willing to give it a shot, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Agreed. Next up is The Trust. Now, ah. this is what people, what you just described, at least the last part of it, is how people describe The Trust to me. Uh -huh. And you see it, and you're like, wait, it's a cop movie with Nicolas Cage and Elijah Wood? Skip. Yeah. Um, you know, first off, Nicolas Cage, not really having the greatest track record of late. All right. Although we all have our, you know, part of us still has, we're in a corner for him. You, we're you like, want man, him to pull it out. We'd love for and, you to do a 360 and turn this around. And, and, and or 180. Almost, this is almost salvageable. This is another one that I thought, oh, like you, I thought, oh, God. I'm a sucker for a heist film. Yeah. So anytime it's well executed, it, just by the fact that it's a heist film, all right, you got my attention. Yeah, you've got Elijah Wood, uh, uh, Elijah Wood as a younger cop, his boss, older cop, Nicolas Cage, but they're friends, they're drinking kind of, buddies, yeah. uh, and Nicolas Cage basically says, look, I found this deal where I'm pretty sure that there's a huge safe, at w like, hidden in this place with no guards, no anything. It's hidden. It, it's successful by being hidden because no one would ever guess he that it's there. He pieces it together and realizes that this must be some kind of crime organization's safe house drop area for their valuables. And one thing that we see very early on in this film, really the thing that makes this film work, it's chalk and cheese. I mean, this is a bizarre combination. But somehow, Nicolas Cage and Elijah Wood have more chemistry together than I would have anticipated. Agreed. They are an odd couple. Uh, and you can only thing we really know about them, they're very sketchy characters. The only thing we really know is that they're cops. Neither of them are very happy with their jobs. They're looking to start something new. And this big score falls into their lap. Now, if you like heist films, you know that half the point of a heist film isn't the heist itself, but how they actually, uh, what happens after they pull how they the heist pull it off. off. Yeah. It's the blowback that comes in, the double crosses. But, and that may throw you off with this film because it starts off pretty funny. Uh, there's some really weird shifts in tone uh, as it gets a little bit darker, as they get closer and closer to really executing this plan. But the only thing that really makes this stand out is that weird chemistry between two actors I never thought 
I would see in a movie together. No, no, not at all. Um, I, you know, I, whereas I agree with you about that, I think that ultimately the plot, which sounds like it's going to be interesting when it gets going, isn't. No. As the three quarters of this film is them in this room above where the safe is, very slowly drilling down through the ceiling of this thing. And uh, with a, a woman that lived in that apartment, they are presuming, uh, who they've basically handcuffed and gagged and stuff in there. And not much actually happens. No, but, I mean, you could make that same argument against, like, Reefy Fee or anything that directed by Jean-Pierre Melville. Uh, you know, a lot of these heist films uh, have that long extended sequence mm. where it is really the only pleasure on screen is just watching professionals do a job. But I wouldn't go so far as to say that's what's happening here. No, it's, I, there's nothing original about the heist either. Yeah, but, and, and that's the thing is they may have decent chemistry, but, the, you know, I say nothing's happening. If they were having an interesting conversation, I would go, yes, okay, this yeah. is great. But they're not really. No, they're this, not. Uh, <laughs> I agree with you on that. They're... A lot of the stuff, I just mentioned a few other heist films, and like I said, most heist films have, the heist itself is this gripping sequence. Yeah. Here it feels perfunctory, uh, it forces our characters to be quiet, it literally puts them on different floors of the building, mm. that occasionally generates some tension, but when the only thing really working for your film is the chemistry between your leads, having them separated or not being able to talk kind of cuts not a, great a lot idea. of it out. Yeah. Uh, it might have worked with a different cast, but, you know, when you have someone as just bizarre as Nicolas Cage can be, uh, and this is actually Nicolas Cage dialed down a bit, oh, which yeah. is why I think it worked. Very, very calm. In fact, there are moments when you expect him to turn into the Nicolas Cage that yeah. we more expect, and he never does. And, and you're just... never really sure, even to the end, what his real intentions are. Yeah. I, I mean, and I that, can't tell if that's a mistake or if that's intentional. Well, the thing is, I think Nicolas Cage is a considerably more interesting character here than Elijah Wood is. Absolutely. Uh, who is more of the avatar for the audience. Elijah Wood is more sort of like the guy going in here and not really knowing what to expect. Nicolas Cage is more of a sort of inveterate prankster and yeah. doesn't take anything seriously. Uh, and you always feel like, as does Elijah Wood... That whereas he may be being largely honest with you, he's still holding something behind his back. Absolutely. And, and, and like any movie like this, you know, when the two characters uh, in the team, you know, have to s trust one another. And, of course, there will be trust issues. And it, it does come to a fairly abrupt ending. Uh, and has a really bizarre, I don't want to say bizarre, it's bizarre in just how inessential it is. A brief cameo by Jerry fucking Lewis of yeah, all people. Really, who just shows up at Nick Cage's dad. Just long enough for you to go, wow, like, he's, he's alive? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow. Uh, he's not sitting behind a bank of telephones or anything. He's still out there. He's actually got a starring role in a movie coming out this Is year called right? Max Rose. Yeah. Well, I'll be down. Yeah, I know. I was uh, like, wow. I mean, I thought he was in this for such a small part because I'm like, well, he probably can barely I, I, yeah, I function. Figured. But he's playing the majority of on-screen time role in this movie coming up. So oh, I'm like, yeah. wow. Okay, there you go. You know, so I was watching this thinking this might I, I, I didn't realize about the other one. I was thinking, you know, could this be the last on-screen performance of Jerry Lewis? But apparently not. Apparently not. So I'm glad he's gotten something bigger to go out with. Well, maybe the last uh, on-screen appearance of uh, Jordan Peele and Alex Rubens together might be Keanu, because it certainly didn't make much money in the theater. No. Nor was did critics go particularly crazy for it. I think it was general. It was... 
you know, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Rooster Teeth. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a solid first effort. Uh, I'm sorry, I said Alex Rubens, uh, Jordan Peele, uh, Keegan Michael Key. Was, I was going to say you you mentioned some guy who was neither named Key nor Peele. No, so I know. I kind of sorry, yes. Uh, but no, I knew which one you were talking about. This is Keanu. This is the debut feature of the guys uh, from Key and Peele who uh, have done great sketch comedy on their show. A the magnificent same name. show. Fantastic. But, you know, same thing as I brought up with Rooster Teeth. Certain people are really good at just nailing those small moments, delivering something really funny in a small, easily digestible package. Uh, and then, of course, then you throw in the fact that Key and Peele are just great at impersonating so many people and yeah. playing so many different characters to stretch them into a 90-minute feature where they're basically playing the two same dudes, which are kind of their default sort of versions of themselves. Uh, for 90 minutes with a pretty slender plot, uh, you're kind of going to have moments that drag. And there were moments in this that drag. I mean, honestly, anytime the cat isn't on screen, and that's not a joke about me loving cats. Yeah. Literally, whenever the cat's not on screen, this movie drags. Right, but the cat does nothing more than just go, oh, you know, it's, yeah. it's that awe moment. But you know what? If I wanted to see that, I would just go on the internet for five minutes at a time and get all the awe cat pictures. I don't know. I this is pretty high-end awe. It's a pretty cute cat. I mean, cat. this I'll is like some that. primo stash awe. You, you know what? If this cat was weed, it would be the finest <laughs> indica. <laughs> you could smoke. You know, that's the only thing they don't do with this cat is roll it up into a blunt and smoke it. Uh, this is, I guess we should talk a little bit about the plot. The actual Since you mentioned is. weed, that seems the perfect time to bring it up. Uh, Keanu is the titular name. Uh, it's the name of their pet cat. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm going to... You know what? I'm not even going to say their names. What, smoke and Oil Dresden uh, is who they play at one point. Uh, no, their actual names here are uh, Clarence and uh, Rel. Rel, yeah. right. And uh, Rel is uh, played by Peel. He is, he's uh, recently lost his girlfriend. He's in a... St- just in the total dumps. He's depressed. He can't go on. He's smoking a lot, a lot of weed. Of weed. <laughs> uh, just can't get motivated. And his best friend and cousin, uh, played by Keel, uh, says, ah, Key, I'm going to come over and cheer you up. And somewhere along the way... Who, by the way, is like the whitest black guy yeah, ever. Which is the job. joke, that yeah. these are two middle-class professionals. Uh, one is a corporate team-building kind of expert. Yeah. Uh, the other guy we see is an artist and photographer. They live... In the suburbs, they have very middle-class lives, and into their lives uh, enters this little tiny kitten that uh, Reld names Keanu because he says it's the best, coolest name ever. Uh, And that brings him to life until the cat gets stolen. This starts to feel like the whole setup for John Wick, except the Ah. dog doesn't die. The cat survives. Appropriate, because Keanu Reeves actually did do the meows for the cat. Yes. He recorded the cat's meows. Uh, He is the cat's meow. Yeah. Uh, So, these rival drug lords, you have to accept that not only can this kitten bring this man out of his stupor, but other drug dealers are so affected by this little kid and that they're willing to kill to get it yeah. back. And, like, to be able to get in there to try and get the... Because they find the drug lord who's got the cat, and they're like, uh, the only way... We have to pose to be these right. other people they're expecting. Turn out the people they're expecting are these 
really badass assassins yeah. called the Dresden Brothers, and so they have to lie about that and go, and they're sent out with the other troops uh, that Method Man right. has. Like, who's show, plays the follow the Allentown like, boys. They'll show you how it's done. And yeah. of course, they have no idea what they're no. doing. <laughs> so they go out there with these guys who actually are big gangbangers and have to pretend like they're the baddest ass gangbangers right. of all time if they want to get their cat back. While driving which, minivans and listening to George Michael. Which, of course, eventually leads around to the actual assassins showing up. Yes. But uh, not till near the end of this thing. Um, I... Honestly, my biggest problem is I just found most of this very trite and unfunny. It, it is. Um, it, there's nothing there. There's stuff that makes no sense. Oh, absolutely. There's a whole sequence where they go to sell drugs to this, uh, like, to, to uh, oh, God, what's her name? Who's oh, you, playing you're herself? Anna, Anna Ferris. Ferris who's that playing That is herself. actually the best scene in the movie, in Oh, my at opinion. first. But as it goes on... And then when you find out later on how to recontextualize it, you're like, yeah. that entire scene made no all, sense. They totally sent all the edges off of this. Yeah. And you do feel like there is, at least with John Wick, you know, which is all about a man avenging his cute little dog. Yeah. It at least has this edge and this violence to it. Key and Peel are so likable and affable as characters that you find it very hard to believe that they're willing to do any of these things to get this little kid in back, and then once it the plot kicks in a gear, by the you kind of go, all right, I'll follow along, and yet it starts getting not darker, but it gets a little more violent. So that by the time you reach the end and you, they wrap up the plot, there are some consequences, but it just doesn't feel like. I, I never bought these characters as actually doing anything for the cat. I get it. It's a joke. The joke is that they're willing to do this for a little kitten. But in order for that to work, it has to be a lot funnier than it is. And it's not that these guys aren't funny. They're hilarious. But that's the problem is that it's these just, guys are used to writing sketch comedy. Right. And this is sketch comedy going to turn into long form where that joke that's funny yeah. once is not funny eight times. No. As evidenced by their way overuse of the George Michael song. In this, way overuse. Which goes so overboard to where even like halfway through the movie's use of it, you're like, are you guys fucking kidding me? Cut it out. Yeah, we get it. The idea of gangbangers <laughs> listening to George Michael is funny. Uh, the idea of like white or uh, black middle class dudes who, as one character says, sounds like, you know, Richard Pryor impersonating a white man. <laughs> it's like one of your best jokes is just a reference to a classic joke yeah. by a comedian who's been dead for decades now. And there's a few bonus features here. There's about three minutes Some where bloopers. where, where uh, the cat is supposed to be. They're doing an interview with the yes. cat. Uh, yeah, there's some deleted scenes. There's a gag reel. You know, not a lot, but the type of stuff you'd expect. Yeah. I, I want. I, I think these guys are so good. And again, this is a first feature. Uh, I really hope that they'll be able to pull it out uh, for the next one. Uh, hopefully, they'll get that opportunity. Uh, I would love to see these guys play a whole panoply of characters because, again, that is their great strength. Sketch comedy, multiple roles, and reducing them to just two roles and then stretching it out to 90 minutes kind of worked against their strengths. I totally did. Next up is one of the films that was one of my favorites of the week. It's not my pick of the week, or I should say at least half of the films in here were among my favorites of the week. And that is Female Prisoner Scorpion oh box my. set from Arrow Video. 
This is some way wacky stuff. Oh here. wow! This <laughs> was I was actually dreading when I when you handed me these discs because I thought, oh, there's three of these things, and if I don't like the first one, I'm probably not going to like the other two. Uh, fortunately, I did like it. Yeah. Uh, this is a from the 1970s. It is a Japanese sexploitation classic about uh, the beautiful Miyako Keiji, who uh, I'm yeah. probably who's also was Lady Snowblood. Lady which Snowblood, is probably a more popular series than this one, yeah. but only just. Uh, she plays uh, Matsu, a, a woman who is betrayed by the man she loves, a corrupt cop. She is sent to prison. She is brutally gang-raped. She is horribly mistreated by not only her fellow prisoners, but the cops and the uh, the warden himself, who is a great villain. Uh, and she just, they try to break her down, and eventually she becomes this badass uh, uh, prisoner who escapes. And then there's a whole series of these things. Yeah, which are not, despite what you'd think, if this was an American series... Every film would just be the same movie. Yeah, it would just not. be, and now she's in prison again, and she has to break out again. The same shit's going to happen. I mean, the second one you know. felt a little samey. Be- only for the first quarter. Because like, they act. send her back to prison Only for again. the first act. And yeah. then it's not at and all. And then it goes off the road. Yeah, now it's like, then it's like a, the, 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 where it's two people on the run who don't like each other handcuffed to each other yeah. type film. Except it's a whole group of women who don't, can't stand each other, yeah. who are for uh, extends, all extents and purpose practically ha- handicapped to each other that have to deal with ghosts and witches and uh, stuff oh, for and, some and, reason. And arty stage direction and every visual trick in the book. Here's the thing, especially the first film, which... I was sitting there watching this going, I am not going to be able to make it through this movie. Uh, it is so much gratuitous nudity. It has so much violence towards women. It is so repulsive in that regards to me. Mm-hmm. No, uh, I mean, it is. You just take these things in the context of the and, time. And you have to take it in the context of the time, correct. But here's the thing. This is garbage, but it is beautifully presented. And by the end, I was like, fuck, this is high art. You took garbage and you spun it into gold. Well, part of it is that we're not expecting anything but garbage. We're not expecting And as it goes along, there's so many clever moments in this thing. And every film has a totally different style. Absolutely. But they're all very artistic. And the first film is the most famous one, uh, uh, certainly. You know, I think partially because it probably inspired a lot of other later women in prison films. Um but the stuff it does where all of a sudden just reality bends in the most yeah. unexpected and non-traditional or non-copied way in theatrical ways. They and, absolutely and, go abstract. And, and apparently some of the reasons were just to save money. Yeah. It's which, like we, you know, but look at Jaws. Yeah. The reason Jaws is the, one of the greatest movies ever made is all about saving money. And yeah. it turned out, hey, happy like, We can't it. afford a set. So we're just going to have a, a big empty set. And, you know, instead of like shooting in two locations, we're just going to build this little wall that's going to look like an office. And, you know, instead of doing a flashback and a cutaway, we're just going to spin the wall around <laughs> and the scene will continue with a new set and, you know, and we'll just move lights. And, and it's hard to describe. You can't really review these films without just listing all of the tricks yeah. that the director has employed uh, to pull this off. Uh, there's a lot going for it. It's not just that. Uh, Mako Keiji is a fantastic, compelling uh, yeah, she's- lead. Got those Virtually eyes. no dialogue. She's got those eyes. She's just constantly yeah. staying glaring. I, I and you're just like, it's just haunting. She is the ultimate woman wronged. Uh, and, and there is not a single positive male figure in any no. of these films. Uh, I think 
uh, I think misogynists would hate this movie, except they would just be turned on by all the flesh and abuse. True. So it's kind of this weird, icky sort of uh, uh, duality that I'm wrestling with, because part of me doesn't want to recommend it, uh, but the other part of me is so impressed by what he does with that camera, what he does through art direction, I mean, I editing s- and lighting. Say, I mean, it depends on what type of thing we're looking for, yeah. as we said. In terms of grindhouse cinema, yeah. this is about as good as it gets. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is top high-end grindhouse cinema that I highly recommend for people who like this sort of yeah. thing. Uh, it, a lot of people want to watch it because it's obscure. It's Japanese, but at least to Americans. But believe me, it's highly considered among those people who have have a taste for such things, yeah. and if you think you're one of those people, I guarantee you you're going to enjoy and, and this for series. for my money, the second film is actually the best in the series. The well, second film is, is uh, argu- I would agree, is better than the first one, if for no other reason that it just goes so much wackier yeah, in terms of what it wants to do. The scene set in black, the colors, the, the old woman in the forest, and the colored leaves. I mean, like I said, this is the work of a young director who had worked his way up through the ranks of the Japanese studio system as an assistant director, finally gets to make a movie, and it's like he figures, I may never get to do this again, so I'm going to use every trick I've ever wanted to use. And boy, does he. And the third film's even... More just dis- is probably the most disturbing of the series, oh, which yeah. is uh, Beast. It's also stable, the more cartoonish, uh, where she's on out on the run and has to take on the yakuza, and she's like friends with this woman who is regularly having sex with her own brother right. because he's severely brain damaged and is just if she says if I don't have sex with him, he's going to rape woman, so I have to be there to have sex with him. Yeah. That's the kind of fucking series we're talking yeah. about here, where you have two <laughs> abortions going on simultaneously, and one is forced and one is. Uh, I guess a woman making a decision for herself and so it's like saying oh you have an opinion on abortion well here's both sides simultaneously going on deal with that Uh, (laughs) while it's happening you know while it's being executed by some insane dragon woman in a bizarre (laughs) outfit it it, it is bonkers filmmaking and you're right it, it is as good as you can get from exploitation films. If you've ever sat through a shitty exploitation movie yeah. and wondered, why the hell do people think these are art and why do they spend so much lip service to all of it, the subtext and meaning? This is so one forth. of the series This actually justifies that. Uh, and one of the... There's actually a shit ton of extras on these, oh, yeah. but the one that I was actually really excited about was on the first film, uh, Female Prisoner 701 Scorpion, there's a appreciation reel for like 15 minutes by yeah. Gareth Evans, who directed The Raid and yep. The Raid 2, uh, talking about wh- how influential these films were on him. And, and the second disc, I cannot remember the young lady's name. She is... Uh, Kier Lajjanice. I believe that's her. She was a... Uh, she's a feminist author, filmmaker, critic... And, you know, she takes it from that aspect of it as well. Uh, even Evans, you know, you th- would think would be like a Mr. Macho kind of action guy. Not he's at like, all. He's no. saying, you know, some of these things are disturb even me. I, yeah. mean, I don't even want to watch them sometimes. But the artistry on display is undeniable. This was the one that was my almost pick of the week. It, it's almost tied with the lobster, even though they're so yeah, different. It's so weird that you're like, you go, this isn't something I, I'm going to revisit very often. Yeah. But I feel like it was important to have watched. Yes. And I did enjoy it while I watched it. I both enjoyed and was repulsed by it Absolutely. at the same time. But I've never seen anything like it. Exactly. You know? And that is, to me, that is like both the Lobster and the the Female Prisoner Scorpion series. That's a mouthful. Uh, even though they're nothing at all alike. I, I think the difference is that 
why I'm inclined to the other one is, you know, it's more recent. It needs an audience. This is an established cult film. It's already known. Uh, it's been released multiple times in different formats. Yeah. Uh, the, the one thing that kind of gives it the edge is in terms of the special features and the typical, uh, uh, the typical love and care that Arrow puts into their releases. Uh, even a bad film released on Arrow tends to have great special features and really good presentation. Some of the prints are a little iffy. I think uh, the film gets visually, the prints kind of break down. Uh, oddly enough, the first oldest film in the series, I think, looks the best. But really, if you But that want, was the one that's the best known. It was so. the best known. Yeah. And, and, you know, honestly, if you want to challenge yourself, if you want to see what the big deal, why guys like Quentin Tarantino and so forth, you know, he's the one guy I was surprised they didn't bring in for this. Because uh, it's all, there's references all over Kill Bill to various parts of this series. Uh, but if you want to challenge yourself uh, and you're willing to sit down and, and watch these three films back to back and then maybe take a shower afterwards. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I really have yeah, to Yeah, but not in a it. prison with lots of other Japanese no, girls. No, no, not because those women will knife you. Uh, they will knife any man in their presence. Well, let's move on to yes. more uh, disturbing yet can't turn away films. Frank Henlotter's Basket Case oh, 2 and 3. Um, this is basically just an excuse for a guy who really loves coming up with creature designs to come up with as many creature designs as he can. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is fine, because I love really creative monster design, and some of the most inventive work for this in the 80s is right here to look at, where they just went hog-fucking-wild. Oh, yeah, there, there's no logic to these creatures. It's no. just like, they're mutants, and they have big mouth. How could they eat with a mouth like that? Ah, we don't know. It doesn't matter. They just look weird. Why does this guy have a head that is... You know, the size and shape of, like, a half-crescent moon. It's like, yeah. who knows? It's just weird. Don't, don't worry about it. You know, yeah, exactly. these are... The There's no logic to the series. Yeah. I mean, the first film, Basket Case, was a minor grindhouse classic yeah. itself. Like, exploitation film is what Han Lauder likes to call them. Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, and generally a bit disturbing. Indeed. Where uh, Kevin Van Henterick, who in all three of these plays Dwayne, Bra uh, Dwayne Bradley, is a normal enough seeming guy, except not at all, because he's got this hideous, deformed little mutant, like basically a lump with two arms and a bunch of claws and nasty teeth brother. From that, him. Yeah, had been surgically removed painfully and without his approval when he was a teenager. Uh, and now he takes care of it by carrying it around in this basket. But uh, anything that threatens their being discovered by people, uh, Belial comes out and starts killing people. Yeah. Uh, and so Basket Case 2 continues on their story, even though at the end of the first one they set it up as if they had died. They didn't. They survived, and they're rescued by this elderly woman named Ruth, played by Annie Ross, uh, who has this gorgeous granddaughter as well, Heather, Heather Rattray as Susan. And they're like, we run this whole sort of basically freak show, except it's not a freak show. She has it's, a home for She has a home people. for wayward mutant freaks. That she keeps hidden. Yeah, she's the Charles Xavier of this world, except no one has special powers. They're exactly. They're Morlocks. Their only special power is looking weird as hell. But everything goes horribly wrong, because what no one takes into account in all three of these movies, Dwayne is batshit insane. He is like, he's crazier than Belial is. Well, Dwayne is insane, but Belial is homicidal in a yeah. way that Dwayne never really is. That's Dwayne true. Just sits, they are kind of too... It, it is interesting because I know that Belial is largely a puppet. 
but in some close-ups, it's the same actor who plays Dwayne in the mask. Yeah, and which is really disturbing when they do that. Yeah, <laughs> but but this is one of those examples of a film that it's not unlike, say, the original Evil Dead, where it's like they start off and they're trying to scare you. You know, the budget and production values are really creaky, and, and you know. But for some reason, the movie makes just enough money, disturbs just enough people yeah. that they get some money for a sequel. But since there's really nowhere else left to go with it, the only thing left to do is just to sort of double down on the absurdity and comedy of it. Really, there's not any scares in these films. No, I mean, by even, the third film, there's a musical number with even, freaks. Even Henlotter says these aren't horror films. They're not They're, they're films. exploitation films, and they were never intended to be viewed as horror the films. The gore is not at all... This is like, you know... You could see this on a double bill with, like, Ghoulies or, you know, uh, Creepazoids or weird movies like that yeah. from the 80s that, you know, Munchies. I it's like know. a cross between those films and Todd Browning's Freaks. Yeah, there's a know? little, there's that little pathos element. And then by the third film, yeah, uh, Bill which also, Isle. Which also came out on Blu-ray. Yeah. With yeah Bil- the, Bil- we are, I'm sorry. Basket Case 3, The Progeny. I, I'm just speaking to them as if it's one movie. Because yeah, they like, might, because they are. They, they feel like two, connected. The first ten minutes of three is the last ten minutes and, of two. And that's exactly what he does yeah. with two as well, which is the first ten minutes yeah. or just, which is a classic uh, save some cash kind of thing. Totally. So like, instead of a prologue, I'm just going to take the last 10 minutes of the previous movie and get you up to speed. Well, here in three, Belial has a whole brood of babies and one of the most disturbing birth scenes of all time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, But again, it's not like disturbing in that you're going to be grossed out. It's just so disgusting and weird. (laughs) It's grossed out, but I mean, you're not going to, there's no horror in it. True. This This is not terrifying. It's just like, oh my God, that's gross. It's a comedy video of watching a dude vomit. It's that terrifying. Pretty much. Uh, um, you know, there's some laughs in this. I mean, this one is definitely the most overtly funny of the three. Oh, like, yeah. I mean, there's a scene where Belial gets, like, a robot oh, yeah. exoskeleton yeah. to fight like, with. Remember that with, like, moment in Aliens? Saws? Wasn't that cool? Yeah. How can we do that same thing with 30 bucks? Which doesn't necessarily <laughs> make it funny, per se. It's funny that they thought that this is what they should do. Yeah. Because, I mean, neither one of these films is are good films. They're uh, not good at all. But... Except for the actual makeup effects, which are wonderful, I think. Some um, of them hold up better them, than others. Yeah. You have to just remember At that these are not... At least in terms of audacity. They are audacious. I think that's the best way. These are not like convincing makeup effects. Yeah. They are obviously stylized and cartoonish. This is like something some 13-year-old kid drew on the back of a school book mm-hmm. and then said, wouldn't it be cool if we actually made this thing? <laughs> uh, so that's kind of what it is. There's obviously a lot of fun... Uh, in the design, uh, for, 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 you know, how little they must have cost, there's some good production value here. Yeah, and um, they actually, the uh, although there's no extras on Basket Case 3, Basket Case 2 has like a 22-minute interview with the makeup artist, yeah. uh, Gabriel Bartolos, who takes a look at the making of it and has various background videos from the actual shoot and also talks to director, writer Frank Kenlauder for stories about it. And they end up talking to the producer, James Glickenhaus, at his office, where they, for some reason, talk about Frankenhooker. Well, because this was the movie they made, like, in between Frankenhooker. Which, by the way, is much better than either one of these two films. I mean, these films were literally made, I think, Basket Case 2 
and Frankenhooker, I think they were literally had like a month long break, maybe like two weeks. And then they just went right into that one. It was like a two-picture deal. And the other thing on here is six minutes with the guy you're talking about who has the half-moon head. They yeah. talked to him about what it was like filming this thing. So that's kind of cute and funny. Yeah. Uh, it was and, hot. Spoiler warning. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, these are ones, if you've never seen them, by all means you should. They're not – they're good – bad movies. Yeah, they're not essential. This is, you know, if you're like me and you were a kid in the 80s and you saw these VHS tapes, you know, on the shelf at Blockbuster or wherever, and you thought, I wonder if those are any good. Well, it took me 30-something years, but now I got to see them. And no, they're not very good, but hey, you'll have fun with it. But that's the thing. It's, Scratch that itch and find out for yourself. It's the audacity of these things that's their quality. Correct. Because, no, they're very poorly made films that don't resemble any other films. It's that's not like the this is the 8 billionth slasher or Alien re- remake. Nothing else is like the Basket no, Case Basket movies. Case is, you know... Don't give them any ideas, but somebody's going to remake this series with a budget one day. Oh, boy. And then they'll try and make it horror, and it'll be embarrassing. Yeah, and it'll be a CG Belial. Yeah, ugh. Uh, Next up, going on to TV, is Halt and Catch Fire Season 2. I'll be honest with you, as much as I enjoyed the first season of Halt and Catch Fire, because I like the smartest man in the room shows, Mm -hmm. you know, like stuff like Sherlock, I mean, I love that shit. Sure. Because I am not. I like watching the guy who is. Nothing wrong with that. And yet I know so many people came down on the show because, oh, it's just another smartest man in the room show. I'm like, fuck you. I like those shows. (laughs) Uh, And... I mean, the idea taking place at sort of the birth of the home computer age in 1983 it's Silicon Prairie in Texas, uh, as things are sort of moving down to like, you know, the idea of like personal computers becoming portable computers, essentially, with Lee Pace as said, smartest guy in the room, having a deal as like the front man for a new company with uh, Scoot McNary as sort of the genius actually building the hardware and software behind that, and hired help of Mackenzie Davis, who's like the wild child uh, programmer girl brought in with all sorts of crazy ideas that just might work. And I had a lot of fun watching it. And then they said, the critics weren't crazy about this, let's change it up and make it really depressing and make Lee Pace's whole life fall apart and um, and then just go from there. And I was like, what? We're sp- What? And then the critics were like, this has finally turned into a good show. I have not seen any of these episodes. I saw this, I didn't. Tell me, uh, because I only have time in my life for very few TV series. Mm -hmm. And if I'm going to watch a series about, you know, 80s uh, computer startups... Should I watch this or Silicon Valley? Oh, Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley. Which isn't about 80s computers as startups, to be fair. Okay. That that one's about right now. All right. That's just always been my impression of it. Maybe, you know what? I'm thinking there was another Silicon Valley. Uh, there, there was Silicon a, Valley, yeah. That's any place there's a strip club. No, Silicon, Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley. <laughs> Silicon. Did I say Silicon? I, I'm copywriting that. That's, I'm going to make that movie. I'm going to call the dude who made Frankenhooker and said, dude, we are going to make Silicon, Silicon Valley. Valley. I can't believe it hasn't happened we already. We can do it for 50 bucks. Uh, no, I was thinking of the old uh, TV uh, miniseries with Noah Wiley and uh, Anthony Michael Hall. That was what I was thinking. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That was a, wasn't a series. It was a movie. Oh, I thought it was, was like about, a two-part miniseries thing. I thought it was just a movie. I never saw it, but it was about Steve Jobs. Yeah, and, that's what I was thinking it was. What have you, all the Apple and PC creators. That tells and, you how up-to-date I am, kids, on TV. <laughs> I just confused a current hit with like some 20-year-old AMC TV show. I mean, look, I think the show is good. I mean, the characters are realistic. It's just the second season is so fucking depressing. I mean, I, I honestly gave up on it halfway through because oh. I've just got I, – I watch so – I'm the opposite of you. I watch so many shows 
that if something's not keeping me completely happy or if I don't have a, another very specific reason I need to keep up with it, uh, like all the superhero shows that I have to, mm-hmm. um, then I just can't make excuses anymore for taking up my time. And Halt and Catch Fire, despite the super high critical reviews for the second season, maybe more happened after episode five or so that was really good, but I was just just getting bored with it. Yeah, that'll, that'll happen. You can yeah. get that fatigue. I mean, don't listen to me. People say it's great. Maybe, maybe if you were one of those people who hated the first season, did nothing for you, maybe you should just check out the second season because it seems like the consensus is that's when it gets good. But for me, it was the other way around. Okay. Uh, let's see. Next up is my pick of the week, ah. which is the Hulu miniseries adaptation of the Stephen King book, Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three, done as a eight-episode miniseries, which was, by the way... Not enough episodes. This is one I wanted to... I have not seen this yet, so tread lightly with the spoilers. When it got to... Just tell me this. When it got to the last episode, I was like, what? No, that can't be it. I thought we had at least four or five more episodes to go. This isn't one of those where they're like obviously stretching it out to like the second season. It is... no, it's this beginning is it. And end. Beginning and end. One and done. An adaptation of the rather sizable Stephen King novel. Yeah. It's one of his book stops. You know, one like door stops. <laughs> you know, like stand the stand right. size books. Um, the idea: James Franco plays an English teacher living in Maine, of course. Um, recently divorced, so he's not really sure what's going on in his life. He ends up befriending Chris Cooper, who runs the local diner, uh, and Chris Cooper, who is. One day shows up looking very sick and old all of a sudden. He's like, what's going on? He's like, look, I don't have much time to tell you. I'm dying of cancer. He's like, man, what happened? Like last, like literally yesterday you were looked totally different. And he explains to him that the doorway, like to the storage closet, basically in the diner, leads to the year uh, 19... it leads to the year 1963. Three. Yes, like towards the beginning of it. And it always leads back to the exact same second. Like if you go back there, walk around for like a week and come back and then go back again, it'll go right back to that initial that moment. That sounds like the there. setup for the, for the Room, that sci-fi TV series from a few years back. Well, his... Oh, I, I haven't actually watched Which The Room. Which is actually really good. But, um, Not to be confused with that shitty Room movie called The Room. Right. Uh... So he's like, look, I'm dying. I've already tried this. It didn't work for me, but we've got to do this, and I need you to do this for me. He's like, what do you want me to do? And once he's convinced by going back that it's real, uh, I need you to go and stop John F. Kennedy from getting assassinated. And, you know, he's a history uh, teacher anyway, or English teacher, and he's very appreciative of the history of the time in particular. Um, And he has nothing going on for him in his life anyway at that point. He's like, I'm divorced. don't have any kids. You know, and this, and he kind of talks him into it. He's like, okay, you're right. I think maybe all this other bad shit you talk about wouldn't have happened. Our country would have gone a more positive way if John F. Kennedy had not been assassinated. And why else would this thing be put in my path? So he goes back well prepared, mind you, with like an extensive series of notes and books and stuff that Chris Cooper has put together after having done it multiple times and warnings. The past doesn't want to change, and it will try to stop you in multiple ways. Um, And goes set set back to start a good, I think it's slightly over a year before JFK's assassination, to figure out 
who actually did it so he can stop him. Because we don't, I mean, we don't, the, the, like, Chris Cooper's like, obviously there's a lot of question whether Lee Harvey Oswald actually did it, or if he did do it, who paid him to do it, or if it, maybe he wasn't the only one. So, so he gets to go back every time and do it. But no, he no, he, once he's, no, once he's back, he's got to stay. Because otherwise it reverts back to the first day again. Oh. You know, that's what I'm saying. Every time you leave and come back, it goes right back to that so this first is basically second like, back. This is like JFK filtered through Groundhog yeah, Day. Yeah, and that's the thing is once he does it, whatever he does, I mean, if he wants that change to stay, he can never go back again. Because if you go back again, every change you made reverts back. Huh. To, to snaps back to the way it was originally. So if he wants to permanently change history, he's got this one shot at it, ultimately. Uh, and maybe, you know, I mean, like, it gave Chris Cooper cancer trying to keep him from doing it. So he's realizing this could also be a suicide mission. And, of course, he falls in love with the absolutely knockout Sarah Gaddon, who I'm, I've been saying repeatedly now, I'm calling now. Within five years, she's going to be, like, one of those actresses wow. everyone talks about now, like they did about Jessica Chastain. Like, wow, she's great. I'd watch anything she's in. She's, like, just got that je ne sais quoi, yeah. like, it thing. Oh, man, um, you know, you got all Frenchy now, you know. using <laughs> them big words like Richard does. But oh, this oh, is Richard. one of the best oh, James Franco things I've seen in a is long there, time. Yeah, I'm so hit or miss on with that guy. Yeah, me too. Uh, it's certainly one of the best Stephen King adaptations we've seen altogether, just period. Yeah. Uh, and people who love time travel stuff, I think you're just going to really enjoy this. Even if you're not normally a big sci-fi person, so much of this is just really well done character drama, you know, um, and historical char- period piece character drama with that sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge of here's a guy who already knows how things are going to go right. and dealing with like, you know, having to do stuff like you think it's as simple as going and placing some bets. Yeah, except the mob controlled all those betting centers, right. and when you keep reliably winning large amounts of money, they come after your ass with a tire not, tire iron because they know something's going on. <laughs> I am I am very intrigued, and and uh, this has actually been on my uh, list of things I want to watch. I just haven't had a chance uh, to get around to it yet. So I'm glad to hear some good things about it. Yeah, I, I just thought this was terrific. Like I said, this is my pick of the week. Absolutely tremendous. And so now we're going to go off book for just a second as I'm going to revert to a previous recording I did with my friend Dimitri to talk about season one of Supergirl. And as soon as we're done doing that, I'll be right back and we'll finish up. So to go off for a bit here and talk to Dimitri because he actually watched one of the shows this week that we're reviewing. And, uh, you know, I knew poor Marco didn't, so I wasn't going to make him suffer through me talking through it alone like I usually do if I didn't have to. We're talking about Supergirl season one available now on Blu-ray. On Blu-ray. On Blu-ray or DVD. Oh, hot damn. And probably not VHS, though. Oh. Or later. So you're never going to get one to watch it again. No, I'm not. I'm not Brian (laughs) Salisbury. Uh, I actually was surprised at how reasonably solid this was when it should have been a giant train wreck. Um, I mean, like, just from the start, that it's basically Ally McBeal, with literally Ally McBeal playing the, her, uh, like, the boss of the character that would, like, Melissa Benoist, Supergirl is, who was Ally McBeal. Uh, yeah, I mean, it really does. It feels that way at first. You're like, wow, where's the dancing baby? Uh, you know, it's like, oh, it's an office comedy. But I felt like it felt its little, found its legs, but at exactly the point when they introduce one of the characters is actually uh, uh, what's his face, J- John John, the Martian man, Martian Manhunter, and from the and the makeup is good. No, the, his makeup was probably the best of the whole show. Yeah, no, I really really enjoyed like his character on that, and, and like 
everything the way the story finally was like, hey guys, maybe we should get a little serious here and like have something happening other than, oh my, I like this guy and he doesn't like me. That was my problem in the beginning. There was a whole lot of love triangle yeah. and just the way that the characters started off, they didn't seem like they were focused on much else than getting together and occasionally saving the world sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed the pilot right off the bat where I was like, oh, I love the idea. She's had known she's had these powers for a while, but hasn't used them because, hey, you know, let me see, man's around, and I like he was there was a screw up, and I was supposed to be here first, and turns out I wasn't, and so now I feel kind of like uh, useless. So I'm film. just gonna go and do regular human stuff. But then when there's an, uh, a plane is crashing, she's like, I gotta do it, and everyone's like, oh, there's a chick Superman, which is how people say that. <laughs> Chick Superman. <laughs> One day we'll be progressive enough to actually yeah. start off with Supergirl. Go back to the golden age. She was actually called Chick Superman. Chick Superman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the other changes here is uh, Jimmy Olsen, who's a ma- major character in this, and the you know the will they won't they love interest uh, is played by Mechad Brooks, a black Jimmy Olsen, the sexiest the, Jimmy Olsen. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, hooking up with a white Supergirl, you're like, damn, hey. progressive CW because interracial sex is <laughs> we, so now we've made it, everyone. Yeah, it's, it's about time. <laughs> I love that everyone. Every time anybody's like, oh, it's controversial. It's like, how is that controversial? They're anymore? still not over Kirk and Uhura kissing oh, back my in the day. God. So. God, it's so embarrassing. They'll, they'll catch up, I hope. Uh, but I really enjoy Melissa Benoist's, like, very traditionalist take on this character. That it's very, like, she's sort of like, she is just the pure all-American girl, you there, know? There is, I will come out and say, there is a, a divide between you between you and me on this show. A cat-shaped divide at this moment, as yeah, your cat literally. lays in my lap. I'm not sure he's alive right now. <laughs> he's just passed out. But... The she is not a problem at all. She mm-hmm. is the perfect hero, the perfect lead, a perfect contrast to Henry Cavill in the Murderverse. Yeah. She is the the hero that DC Comics should be focusing more attention on. They should be more like her. Mm-hmm. She Agreed. Is so positive. You felt so like you're about to go to the negative stuff there, though. You were like, but I feel like there's a but well, here. I, she, not necessarily about her. No, not her. Show. Not her. She's yeah. not the problem. It's the. I find a lot of trouble. I have a lot of trouble with the stories and the dialogue throughout mm-hmm. the season. Things that start off as the world-ending threats might wind up being minor nuisances by the end of the hour. Like, I don't want to jump... I'm not going to spoil anything for anyone who hasn't seen it, but there's a threat at the end, the menace threat, that originally has so much influence over the people of National City. Mind control, all that, all, all, all complete domination of the populace. Yeah. It's diffused and defeated with a minor speech about hope. Yeah. Well, that that's not uncommon in comic book adaptations, to be sure. That's fair. But it is a bit of a letdown. It is. And like I said, not everything in this first season works. What makes me excited is, for A, that's shocked that this works at all, because CBS really felt like they were just kind of, what? Oh, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. I guess we should be have a, have a superhero show. Yeah. Cared about it so little <laughs> that they just basically left it at CW's doorstep <laughs> with a little note, here, I heard you wanted this <laughs> for the second Definitely season. Definitely reeks of abandoned baby syndrome. Yeah, it totally does. And I'm sure CW is going to do a much better job with it than CBS. Oh, we did, saw actually. that in what was the best episode of the season, 
world's finest. Uh, I really, yeah, yeah, I really like that. Um, I will say, I think my favorite episode of Supergirl, though, actually, was uh, not that one, but in fact, the adaptation of the Alan Moore story uh, for the man who has everything, but it was for the girl who has everything. No, I'll see that point. So well done. Yes. I mean, that's just such classic Alan Moore stuff, and I was shocked when it started. The moment they showed the flower, I was like, I know what that is! I know what that flower is! Absolutely. I'll tell you, looking at the episodes that came before it, I think that was around the point when I was like, I might want to give up on this. Mm -hmm. But then they did that episode, and I was back on. I mean, it's one of those things. I watch every superhero show regardless if I like it or not. Like, I can't stand Legends of Tomorrow, but I'm watching it. I'm still (laughs) watching it. Like, whatever. It's part of the CW-verse. I'm watching it. Of course. Yeah. Uh, And this one actually was the one where I started off feeling that way, but around episode five or six, I was like, I'm really enjoying this. I didn't really think I would be at this point, but and a lot of that, like I said, was 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 a uh, uh, Martian Manhunter. I right? just so like what he adds to the series. So yeah, um, there's a couple of bonus features on on this thing, so maybe worthwhile if you want to. Nothing really super extensive. It's not one of those ones with like 18 featurettes, but it's got nice stuff about the history of Supergirl, the character, and stuff, which I always like when they do that. So. Hey, I like that a lot. Yeah. So finishing up on TV, going back into movies as we go into the home stretch here. We're going to talk about a hologram for the king. Ah, yes, indeed. A hologram um, for the king. What a title. I mean, directed by and written by Tom Twike, uh, yeah. Tyker. I always want to say Twiker. I always want to say Twiker uh, myself. Yeah, but uh, who directed one of my favorite movies of all time, Run, Lola, Run. Run, Lola, Run. Just Perfume so, was also very perfume good. Perfume was pretty solid. I, I've yet to see Cloud Atlas. I hear very mixed things. But generally, this is a director who I'm very interested yeah, in. Yeah, Cloud Atlas is one of those ones like we were talking earlier about uh, being audacious, yeah. but not necessarily good. Yeah. That's Cloud Atlas well, all because the place. book is great. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, if you think about it, it never really occurred to me until this film, which is based on the Dave Eggers novel. Yeah. And uh, apparently, according to uh, the interview with Twiker, uh, you know... <laughs> Tykwer. Tykwer. God damn it. I know. With Tom. We're I do it every time. With Tykwer. Uh, you know, he actually had been working on an adaptation of another Eggers property, which didn't happen. Uh, but he pretty much optioned this movie, uh, the rights to A Hologram for the King, like right the same week that the book came out. Uh, and if you look back at his career, yes, Run Lola Run was sort of his calling card for many years. But Perfume, which he adapted, uh, was a huge hit in the 80s. Uh, Cloud Atlas was a very well, re- uh, very well received novel. And now he's doing, you know, Dave Eggers, who's one of the more popular, uh, well regarded novelists. Hipster today. writers. <laughs> the hipster writers. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, though. So he really has this literary bent, which I would have never have assumed based on Run Lola Run. Uh, but. Not having read the book, I can't tell you whether or not this oh. is a good adaptation or not. Me neither. Uh, I assume it's fairly faithful. Uh, the the only real offensive thing, it's not even offensive, the only thing really against this film is that for all of its many good qualities, it's ultimately not very interesting. Yeah, that's it, it's, true. It's kind of, it's there. It, it's, maybe it was a great book. Maybe it was a great, edgy sort of, you know... Uh, evocative kind of novel, but the adaptation itself is just about uh, a middle-aged, past middle-aged, this is basically white man first world problems. Uh, Tom Hanks is a middle-aged salesman who works for a company. Uh, He is 
trying to introduce this holographic conference system. Which is awesome. Which, in theory, is awesome. <laughs> I want one. Uh, you know, but he wants to sell it to the king of Saudi Arabia. How else is Princess Leia going to let Obi-Wan know that he's her, her only hope? <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the imagery here is really nice, but... Basically, that's all there really is to it. It feels like a travelogue. It wants to be deeper than that. It's yeah. about this middle-aged man, played by Tom Hanks, who is having a midlife crisis. He has this weird boil that's growing on his back. He's recently got a divorce. He's losing his house. He's losing his family. Uh, you know, he's kind of feeling that point where, you know, he's not really the young guy in the room anymore. And in fact, man. even his company isn't even, it doesn't seem like they're even expecting him to pull yeah, this Yeah, he's off. only there because once upon a time he met a nephew of the king of Saudi Arabia. That's his one in, and his job is to go to Saudi and sell them on this multi-million dollar conferencing system. And I mean, he gets there and like, like the meeting he's supposed to have with the guys was yeah. to connect him with this other guy. The guy's never there. Yeah. A secretary who couldn't care less. The people where he's set up in, they didn't even bother to put him in a building. They yeah. put him under a tent. With no Wi Fi. No Wi Fi in the air conditioning, which no air conditioning. works occasionally. And no food. And no food. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like clearly nobody gives a fuck it's, about them being. And, there. and the real heart of the film is, you know, there's this recurring gag where he keeps. Uh, falling asleep and waking up late and missing the shuttle to this really bizarre, absurd sort of model city in the middle of the desert. It's mm. uninhabited except for like some Filipino uh, workers living in squalid conditions. Uh, so in theory, this is supposed to be the beautiful city of the future, but it's really just this empty shell of a building uh, in the middle of the desert. And every day he misses the shuttle and he has to hire a local who, with his car... Uh, who dry and I'm blanking on the actor's name. Uh, he's kind of an engaging um, character. Ben Wishaw is that who that was? No, no, you're thinking of uh, something else. Uh, ben Wishaw was in the Lobster and in Perfume, which Techwood did to. Right? Well, he's in this too. Is he really? Yeah, he, he play? plays Dave, who I thought was the taxi driver, wasn't he? No, the taxi driver was, it was Zara or or Han. Maybe Han. Either yeah. way, the idea is that he does find a local who kind of shows him around, drives him through the city, and it, it's trying to be this culture clash comedy uh, of this man from America who gets to Saudi Arabia and quickly realizes that they do things differently But it's, just, it's, it's a comedy, but it's a sort of like angsty, exhausted afterthought on a culture clash comedy. Yeah. It's not... There's nothing about this that has any excitement at all for the project, except for a really misinformed intro sequence with Tom Hanks paraphrasing a Talking head song See, and, and music video. That's the problem, though, because there there is, we talked earlier, you know, absurdity has shown up a few times during this particular episode. And it introduces us to the idea of a man who's having this nervous breakdown, uh, and he is having these weird, vivid dreams and hallucinations, and you think they're going to go somewhere with that. It's introduced from the very opening scene, mm -hmm. and it goes nowhere. Yeah, And it, to me, it's like, all. wow, then it becomes just this travelogue culture clash An comedy. An afterthought of a third-act rom romantic like subplot yeah, that which really arguably feels might tapped be the, on. But might be the best part of the movie, just yeah. because the actress is so engaging yeah. as the uh, Saudi doctor who... Just working on an American, just working on a man, you know, as his doctor is 
somewhat controversial, and they choose to somehow, you know, make a life together. The only thing really... This is not unlike, say, The Trust, where the only thing you have going for it is the central performers. Here it's really Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks proves once again that he is our Jimmy Stewart, whether hmm. you like that or not. Not just not one of Jimmy Stewart's better but films. But it's not one of Jimmy Stewart's <laughs> better films. Yeah. Uh, yet it's the only reason this movie got made. It's the only reason this movie's even watchable. Because really, I kept watching the movie thinking, there's nothing bad happening. There's good performances. The dialogue is good. It's playing with some ideas that are, you know, current and worth talking about. But none of it ultimately adds up to anything really interesting. And when you have someone like uh, Tom Hanks, you just kind of put everything on him and go, well, Tom Hanks will guide me through this because he's Tom Hanks. And I see Tom Hanks trying to play a less likable version of himself. But he can't do it. But he can't do it. (laughs) I really thought this needs to be edgier. This should be – I couldn't think – I ended up spending half the movie thinking, who would I rather see play this role? Yeah. Uh, someone who's not likable, who's obviously just this. Sam Rockwell would have been Sam, a great choice oh, for man, this. man, that would have been. Tom Hanks was just weird yeah. casting for this. Yeah, yeah, it's like they almost needed a bankable name and yeah. someone who was likable like, to guide us through the story. literally, not almost. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, but let's but, enough yeah. said about that. It's like, not horrible. Like, it's not great. It's not horrible. It's like so missable. It's ridiculous. It's missable. But it's not terrible. Uh, next up is one of the other films that would that came close from my favorite of the week, which is Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. Coming from Draft House Films and MVD Entertainment, this is the story of a bunch of uh, three 11-year-old boys who lived in Mississippi who decided that they loved Raiders of the Lost Ark and filmmaking so much, they were going to make a shot-for-shot, completely faithful adaptation of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it took them, well, for most of the film, they had done like 90% of it by this time. Seven years. One scene they couldn't do. Yeah, there was one scene that was just, they couldn't figure out how to do it because it would have cost too much money, which I believe was the big airplane, uh, rotating airplane. They got a submarine. They couldn't get an airplane. But, well, I mean, that was a big, wide, open shot with a rotating airplane. You've got to be able to climb on top of and under and have rotors. I would have done that with a shitload of cardboard. Yeah. Uh, I would have made a cardboard airplane. I would have done it for 50 bucks. The fact that they did the whole rest of the thing just so... I mean, and which honestly doesn't look bad for no, what no. it is. No, no. It's all shot on VHS. Yeah. It's, uh, in fact, the only thing I really thought uh, that they missed an opportunity was the monkey. The little Capuchin monkey was played by the pet dog. Right. Which is kind of awkward seeing somebody balancing a dog on their shoulder. <laughs> like, could have you got a parrot, a lizard, a cat, anything smaller than your Labrador, whatever that dog was. But this is not, this is what we're talking about, is not a release no, not of that. that film. It is a documentary about the making of that film, which is considerably more interesting than watching the film in and of itself. I did see the film when it first played at the draft. I think this was back when they were still uh, on Lavaca. Uh, they played this many years ago. It became a fan favorite. And I have not seen the documentary. I only know about it because I saw that initial screening of the film itself. Yeah. Uh, and I don't remember that scene being missing, oddly enough. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe at that point they had already filmed it. Maybe. No, no. This was before. I think what happened was... Because it was only... It was a few years ago they finally they got the money to film it. They discovered this. Everybody loved it. Yeah. 
And it certainly became this thing, and, yeah. and everybody joined in. Unlike yeah. the version I saw cool did not that have was. that, because now the new version. Correct me if I'm wrong. The new version features them as adults. Yes, well, that's that sequence. The one I saw was only with kids. That sequence was long after when the film was discovered by the Draft House and Spielberg and Lucas all found these guys in this film and went, "Wow, that's amazing! We want to help you finish this yeah. thing." And they they put up, you know, they put up and did yeah, not shut that. up the money for them to finish well, it as more adults. More importantly, they did it. So them. Yeah. They stopped doing that. Well, they never sold it. So They never sold they, it. Hell, they never even put it up anywhere. I think it was like kind of one of those brought up in conversation at a festival. Yeah, we did this. And someone yeah. was like, really? I'd did love to see Did any of those guys that. become actual filmmakers? No, I don't think so. See, um, that, to me, that's the only bum note in this whole story. Because uh, it's this wonderful story about how these kids do this. You know, they love the film. They're going to make a faithful, at least as faithful as they can be, recreation of their favorite movie. Yeah. Suddenly, you know, somehow somebody gets a VHS copy. It gets handed around. The draft house says, man, this is great. I can't believe a bunch of kids did this. They screen it. It becomes a big success. And then, of course, it grabs the attention of everybody. And now fast forward like a decade or more later, it's a documentary. Well, that's the thing about but why this. did they become filmmakers? But that's the, kind of well, disappointing. I mean, it is, but ultimately, because these are this is about that joy that comes with just being so so passionate about one thing when you're that age. Yeah, you know, fair that for many people, they they never lose that joy for that one thing they had. These guys didn't. Even as adults, they just love Raiders as much as they ever did. Yeah. But their lives just didn't take them in the direction of being filmmakers. Yeah. They it wasn't so much they wanted to tribute film. And pursue it. They just wanted they to really do were just focused on Raiders. They were really yeah. focused on Raiders. So it's about that kind of passion. Yeah. And as it turns out, this documentary in and of itself is a very solid Spielbergian type adventure of watching these guys who had enormous amounts of behind the scenes footage while they were doing uh, all this. See, I have you not know? seen this yet. I'm going to borrow. This. I mean, they were smart doing interviews with each other and with their parents and stuff along the way. And you're like, okay, how could they have had any idea anyone would ever see this shit? But apparently, they. Had had an endless amount of VHS tapes to record on because they just kept going. There's so much footage. And then even so, they have them, you know, meeting back up with the children they worked with when they were originally filming this, who they haven't seen in decades, you know, to talk about it and watch it again. It has various famous folks who are in the movie or, or big fans of the movie who are famous talking about it and saying how cool this is. And it is cool. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it was a viral super video watchable. before viral videos existed. Very true. And there's more than four hours of bonus content Holy on shit. here, including two uh, commentary tracks, deleted scenes in the documentary, outtakes from the adaptation, Q&A footage from its premiere at the Alamo Drafthouse in Austin, Texas, which was 2003, for the record. Oh, okay. Uh, and now, if, of the documentary? No, no, no. Of, of, the, of, the, of the film itself. I, yeah. I must have seen it after they did their presentation, because I only saw it. You know, uh, just the screening. Not there was no, there was no interview there. Uh, and then a photo but it booklet. Was a few years back. And then a photo booklet with the storyboard art. And then, of course, free HD copy of the film as well. Kind of surprised that Lucasfilm, while letting them do this, uh, wasn't um, <laughs> uh, wasn't uh, willing to let them put in the actual film itself as a bonus feature. Yeah, I mean, I'm you like, know, they... why not? I mean, come on. It's not like anyone's going to watch that and go, I'd much rather watch this than Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. It's, it's an afterthought that's fun. It, it, it is. And, you know, but again, the, the best thing I can say is that Lucas didn't have to do that. And, you know, he finally said, all right, fine. You know, that doesn't happen every day. I mean, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg are under no obligation to kind of throw their weight behind this. And yeah. I don't know that they 
did anything more than just typing an email saying, yeah, okay, they can do that. Yeah. But the fact that they bothered to say, that's okay, you can release this, you can talk about it, it, it it's to their credit. Agreed. Because you know, they absolutely could have just said, hell no, you're not ever going to show this again. But they did it. Because uh, then they would have been the people who killed everybody's dreams yeah. and crushed the joy of yeah, the children. like Paramount when they're it telling people PR they can't thing. make Star Trek fan films anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway. See how well that worked out. Let's move on to the what final review of our show, the giveaway. Oh, the giveaway. And the giveaway this week is an HBO movie that is well worth your time seeing. Absolutely. Directed by Rick Fam... Fam oh, damn it. Famuyua? Famuyua? I who, uh, directed he Dope. Dope, yeah, which was very highly regarded <coughs> uh, just last year. This is the story of Anita Hill, who was, the, like, of all the sex scandals that were going on in D.C., this is the one that was about somebody who, if you were going to cast an askance eye and her not telling the truth, then you were clearly the asshole. She was a professor of law at a university yeah. at the, by the time all this came up, years after the event, where basically where Clarence Thomas was being, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was selecting his Supreme Court nominee, mm -hmm. selected him as one so very conservative, especially on women's and body issue type stuff, guy. And she was basically being encouraged by someone who knew that she had said, when I used to work for him, this guy used to sexual harass me on almost a daily basis. She's like, you need to say something, not just because of your own, okay, that was my experience and you want to get something for it. You don't need to do it for that. You need to do it because this guy is the guy about to be helping to make the laws about stuff like yeah. that. This is an interesting study. And, and having grown up during this period, uh, now you have to remember, and they do at the very beginning put this in context. This was shortly after uh, Ronald Reagan had uh, nominated uh, Bork, Richard Bork, uh, to uh, be Supreme Court uh, Justice. And the Democrats just, kind of like what's going on right now with uh, Marlon Garrick. I'm getting his name wrong. Garrick? Marlon? Uh, I've had a beer, folks. It happens. <laughs> not even uh, a whole beer. Not even a whole and beer. Already. But it's already. He's it's like been talking a about long when, he, day. when he nominated Borat. Borat, with Borat, who obviously is clearly qualified. No, but Merrick Garland. Uh, right now, you know, you ha that's what, the, the interesting thing about this film is right now how current it is. Yeah. Uh, where you have a political party uh, saying that we are not going to, by any stretch of the imagination, consider your nominee for the Supreme Court. And you could be talking about Obama and the current Republican Congress, or you could be talking about Ronald Reagan and the then- Democratic-controlled Congress. That shortly afterwards, uh, once Thurston Marshall dies, who's the first black uh, member to ever sit on the judiciary, uh, the Republicans get this great idea. It's like, all right, fine. You know, but they didn't like Bork. We're going to put in this guy. We got a Larry black guy. Larry Thomas. We got a black guy. Yeah, he's not you know, Thurston Marshall. It's going to be every... You're, nobody's going to be feel bad about voting for this guy. And really, they kind of had a sure lock on it. He really seemed like he was going to have smooth sailing through this process until during the course of the, the fairly standard investigation, which everybody does. They just do background checks. They go, hey, what was this guy like to work with? Is he a good guy? Do you think he's fair? And they finally reach Anita Hill, who was a law professor who had clerked with Justice Thomas. And a spoiler warning, he gets nominated and as approved for the Supreme Court. <laughs> uh, but she, there's a really interesting twist here where 
it's not even a twist. We can't talk about this as a twist. It's just a simple fact that many women, when they felt harassed or uncomfortable, still had to deal with those guys. And if you spoke up, you ran the risk of ruining your career. You didn't even run the risk. You It would you, ruin you were, your career. Yeah, and she continued to do business with him. She continued to talk to him. She continued to have conversations with him regarding legal matters. And, of course, once she is approached and said, did Justice Thomas ever, or not Justice then, but did Judge Thomas ever say anything inappropriate? Or, you know, did you know you ever have any moments where you were not comfortable? And then it comes out. And yeah. uh, Anita Hill, uh, uh, as she points out repeatedly, is like, I didn't come. Th- I didn't come out here to talk about this. I was asked. Yeah, I didn't bring this. They up. came to me. They came to me, me, and once they asked me, I did, could not, in good conscience, yeah. conscience, not. Talk and she about wasn't it. after anything. In fact, every single thing about her talking up put her life in jeopardy. It right. did nothing advantageous Every, for her But at all. everybody, but of course, the talk at the time was that, well, isn't this convenient? She's held this secret to herself for a decade, and now, just now, she decides to come up? Which was, what was important about that is it finally brought out into the bigger world the discussion of, yes, because everyone's afraid to speak about this stuff, yeah. because what's the point? No one's going to listen to you, even if it just happened. But They'll she- just fire you and there's no repercussions. Yeah, but the thing is, now, uh, you have to remember, it's empty. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you have to remember that at the time, this was really big news. And, and yeah. for some of our younger listeners, they may not remember seeing this. This happened like 91, 92. It was big news. And you had this awkward moment where uh, the Republican uh, Party had selected, your Republican part, uh, Party president had selected a African-American. So you thought, okay... This is going to be a good substitute for Thurgood Marshall. How can anybody complain? We're trying to get more representation on the court. And suddenly a black woman comes forward and says, actually, he said some pretty inappropriate things to me. Uh, Marshall. uh, Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood Marshall, of course, for those of you who didn't know, one of the greatest, one of the greatest Supreme liberal justices, justices ever. Clarence Thomas was completely the polar opposite of him, yeah. but he was a black man. The optics were good. <laughs> now you had this other optic, which is it wasn't bad enough that it was a woman coming out to speak against him. It was a black woman. So you had people who were kind of torn between so those many different ideas of what there was were a happening. Lot of ideas. You know, the thing is, this isn't a he said, she said kind no. of scenario. This isn't like some Rashomon or Oleana thing where it's like, well, you know, it's depending on your interpretation. Either she lied or one of our current Supreme Court justices perjured himself in front of, well, the world when and, he was on national television. And this went so far as to people were wearing shirts like it was a Twilight argument, Team Edward or yeah. Team Jacob. I mean, literally in the, in the show as well. Now, this adaptation of the story here, you've got that, the yeah. great Kerry Washington as Anita Hill, who does a wonderful job playing this role. Very she good. plays it very straightforward, very... She never... Like, she is constantly somewhere between exasperated, outraged, and bored by the entire process the whole time. And she does a great job of never overplaying any of those hands. Right. And Wendell Pierce is actually one of the more surprising things. Uh, Wendell Pierce is a great actor. Well, I mean, come on. He played Bunk on The Wire. Yeah. I mean, he's so good. He's a fantastic actor. And if if you know anything about his political activism... It's probably a safe bet that he's not a big fan of Clarence Thomas, but he plays Thomas fairly. Uh, obviously, the filmmakers made a decision to not editorialize. I do think by the end, you do know where they fall uh, as far as their opinion goes. 
but the decision is made early on to, okay, we're not going to take sides here. We're not going to tell you who we think did it. Yeah. It's up to you. These are the facts of what These happened. These are the facts. This is what was said. And you get uh, Wendell Pierce has that thankless job of going of playing someone who is opaque. He yeah. cannot actually ever come out and look guilty. He can't ever come out and just say, well, I'm innocent, obviously. He has to make the acting decision that's very difficult to pull off yeah. of playing these scenes where you have to decide, is he feeling guilt over realizing or fear out of realizing that he did in fact do this and he might be in big trouble or is he ex- it showing us like that natural confusion and emotional upset that would come with being accused of something that you yeah. didn't do and it could be read either way yeah. which is quite a, a pretty masterful turn by him I think in a- this absolutely. role absolutely it's a very I mean, come on, let's face it. You know, Clarence Thomas is most famous for not ever saying anything. Yeah. Uh, You know, the most famous thing he ever said was during the course of these hearings themselves when he referred to his his, uh, investigation as a high-tech lynching. So, of course, that made everybody uncomfortable. Then he gets the nomination, he gets approved, he goes to the Supreme Court, and he's... It's actually newsworthy if he actually says a word during okay, the Okay, well, let's not talk too much about the I'm whole sorry, future right. history outside of the I'm show sorry. itself. I, I'm kind um, of fascinated by this topic. It is an interesting topic. I, I do think it's important uh, as far as getting all of the facts in. This yeah. is a kind of a... It's somewhere between a waxworks, newsreel kind of film. They cut into a lot of stock footage. Uh, with a lot of famous people playing famous politicians, yeah, you know, like Greg Kinnear as Joe Biden, as Joe Biden, who was overseeing the the, the uh, accusations, yeah, <laughs> uh, and Jeffrey Wright as Charles Ogletree, who's always great good. as always. Eric Stone Street as Kenneth Duberstein, Treat Williams as Ted Kennedy. Oh, surprisingly, looking right for that part. Yeah, and I Bill know. Right? Who's exactly a, at the right age? Yeah, but, and uh, Bill Irwin was also in this. Uh, Jennifer Hudson plays the second woman who came for right. that. Accusations. Angela, what right? You remember when she was like a big girl and they would show things like, oh, Jennifer Hudson, great voice, but she's a big girl. And now she's still got a beautiful I, voice, but I now she's like, either. God damn. You know, <laughs> the, the, the thing about this movie is that it's kind of, there's so much information. And I think that's why I was stumbling earlier. It's hard to talk about this movie because we already know how it came out. The way they address this is they utilize a lot of footage from the period intercut with real people uh, yeah. current day actors and each scene feels like a little each scene feels like it's 30 seconds to a minute long this movie is just paced rapidly it's somebody comes in a the room they say we're going to do this we got to call this guy the very next shot is them calling that guy yep and it just feels like that it's constantly moving at a fast moving clip and i do sometimes think that it would have benefited from taking some time to pause examine some of these issues in depth but by halfway through, I realized that is not what the filmmakers want to do. That's not what they're trying to do. And I think for what they want to do here, it's extremely well done. Absolutely. Um, and this is a really good look that's not going to be dull at all to people who really don't completely understand or maybe even have heard of yeah. what happened then. And it relates very strongly to to our world today. Yeah. Not too far after. after <laughs> uh, it's nominated for two Primetime Emmy Awards right now for Outstanding Television Movie and Outstanding Lead Actress in a Limited Series or Movie for Kerry Washington. Uh, so this is a giveaway. Seems like a heck of a choice a right now one. to watch. And what you're going to want to do to win it is you're going to want to get on Twitter and at one of us, Nat, you're going to want to do hashtag uh, confirmation giveaway. 
You're going to want to, yeah, man. Geez, I don't know what to tell them. What the challenge? This is such a be. heavy topic. I don't. Yeah, want to I know. Like a silly smarmy joke about it. I know, right? Uh, uh. It's like, oh fuck! I should have thought twice about this one. I don't know. How about, um, uh, uh, let's see, what one famous woman? Would you like to sexually? No, 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 that's not that's not appropriate. Yeah, I mean, I have a list, but I would never say it out loud. Yeah, no, of course not. Not sexually harass. Anyway. No, yeah, I wouldn't do that. To not me. without her permission. Never without her permission. Never without my permission. Yes, multipass. Multipass. <laughs> <laughs> We're such dorks. Yes, we are. Uh, God, this is so hard. Why does this have to be so hard, Marco? I don't know. It's got to be correct here, and I don't want no... We're just so used to playing clowns. It's like, now we have to do something serious? It's like, who do you think should have been the uh, last judiciary nomination? Uh, Who is the most ridiculous person who who, uh, could be nominated to the Supreme Court? Oh, I like that. Okay, oh, wait. Let me add a wrinkle to that. It's a nightmare world, a dystopian future. Donald Trump has been elected president for life. We already live in the darkest timeline. Who is his first Supreme Court nominee? There you go. Preferably not a real lawyer. Yeah. (laughs) Or a real judge. And honestly, no answer is so wacky that it might not be actually true at some point. He could nominate the Terminator. It doesn't matter. Who would you like to see Donald Better yet, it's a person that Donald Trump actually thinks is a real person. Like, Donald, the Terminator doesn't exist. No, I've met Arnold. He's a great guy. He's like, no, you realize he's not actually an android. He's not a cyborg. I don't care. That's the guy I want. Who would Donald Trump choose to fill the Supreme Court with? There you go. So anyway, that's it for Digital Noise. Thank you much as well. Subscribers, thank you. If you're not a subscriber, please become one. If you can't become a subscriber, you want to buy something on Amazon, use our links. And that's the whole story. That's it. And uh, with that, I'm out of here. And I I guess Marco is too. I still miss Richard. You're not Richard. I'm not. We miss you, Richard. I'm pouring a beer on the floor for you. I'm not not British. I'm not Scottish. I'm not red-haired. I don't have a beard. And I'm not wrong about most things. It's going to be an adjustment, but I'll make it because I am strong and God damn it, I can do this. <laughs>